to Left of the Dial. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. Chris Payne is a, a journalist with kind of a huge list of, of writing credits. He's written for publications like Alternative Press, Vulture, and Billboard. But he's here today to talk about his new book that I am so excited to talk about. Listeners will be completely unsurprised to hear that I, I jumped on the opportunity to talk with Chris about his new book, which is called Where Are Your Boys Tonight? The Oral History of Emo's Mainstream Explosion, 1999 to 2008. It's out June 6th. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Payne. Hi, hello. What up? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I love talking about this all the time for any <laughs> length of time, so pleasure's mine. Me too, but I don't usually have a good excuse for it. I'm usually just kind of jumping into other people's conversations. You don't need a good excuse to talk about this stuff. Well, I'm excited to have <laughs> one today, though. I'm going to ask you just a couple of questions up top before we get into the music, if that's okay with you, to kind of give folks an idea of the book and kind of uh, where you're coming from with it. So I'd like to start, this is a big general question, and then we can kind of get into the nitty gritty, but why this book and why now? So I started working on the book in April of 2020. And it's coming out now in June of 2023. So I was working on it for pretty much up until the beginning of this year. And I, in a way, I'd always wanted to write it since I was like growing up in New Jersey in, in the years <laughs> of the book. And as the years moved by, it made more and more sense in my head as to what that would look like. And I did two oral history articles when I was a staffer at Billboard in the 2010s. One was about Panic at the Disco's first album, Fever You Can't Sweat Out. And the other was about the 2005 Warp Tour. And I really enjoyed writing those oral histories. Both of them feature a lot of people who were in the book as well. Mm -hmm. And I got a really good reception to them. They did really well, got a lot of positive feedback for them. So the gears started turning of, okay, <laughs> could I do many of these oral histories and weave them together into a narrative about the entire era that makes sense and reads as a book? And I hope it does, because that's what <laughs> I'm putting out. And what really set it into motion was like a lot of other people i got laid off in the beginning of the pandemic so there were a few things kicking around in my head when i got laid off what's the next path if i'm going to stay in journalism if i'm going to keep keep doing this full time i had been a staff writer at billboard from 2013 to 2020 so seven years and that was my first job out of like at, moving out of my parents house my first wow. full-time job after college. So that was, it was a cool job while it lasted. It was really fun. It was, a you know, I think probably stayed at my first job longer than most people stay at first jobs yeah, these days. So it was all I knew in a way. So it was a big thing for me to figure out, all right, what's next? And fortunately, things came through with the book. It's a lot of things from, you know, putting together a proposal and finding an agent and a publisher and getting these people to talk, you know, all of which, you know, we can talk about if you want, but it's pretty cool that it's all just here now. 
Yeah, I do want to talk about all of that. Usually, so just for you, for a little background and for our listeners, I mean, our listeners know this, but we are typically an independent music podcast. I do talk with folks like yourself who've written about music in different ways from time to time. So the reason I'm saying that is usually we dive deep into the songs in particular. Don't think that's going to be the case for this episode. We're definitely going to cover some music, but I really do want to be able to spend some time talking about the book more than anything. Um, Our listeners will be happy with that, I'm sure. Um, So I do want to talk about all of that. The cast of characters with this book is so vast. I was reading it just like every time another name pops up, I was just thinking about just from your side of things, like reaching out and coordinating and deciding who to speak to and who the kind of main voices were. The book is for our listeners. It's organized in a few different kind of like sections and eras, but it's also organized sort of geographically. And so looking at the different scenes at the time, Jersey, of course, Chicago, Florida, a couple other places. And is that sort of how you started that way and then drilling down or what was your process there? Yeah, I always had in my head the idea of starting with the local scenes, which to start off the book is Jersey, Long Island, Chicago, and South Florida. Um, Originally, I had Orange County as an idea for that, which I pushed out of the beginning and kind of brought up a little bit later. I didn't think it was quite important enough to highlight with those first four, but... Yeah, there's a few things that always sort of stuck in my head is, okay, this is how the book's going to go years before I started it. And that was one of them, starting with those four local scenes. Because in my mind, like this wave of emo, the wave of emo that went from underground to mainstream, I think more than any places else, those four were the local scenes that really nurtured it. I think being from Jersey, of course, you know, That feels like the most important one to me, but the ones that you name are also the ones that I always, I remember hearing about as growing. It's like, you know, who else has a scene kind of like this and else is doing, and there's other places, there are other places you talk about in the book, but, but I definitely think those are the ones that really kind of, kind of popped off uh, that way. Uh, Something else I was, I was thinking about with these though, is that you said you started in uh, mid 2020. So there are a lot of bands like that's before... Mike Hem announced their reunion, and then <laughs> by extension, Midtown's reunion. And these are um, bands that feature pretty heavily in the book. And had you reached out to those people before their um, kind of like, I guess resurgence isn't the right word, but had had been announced? A lot. Yeah, fortunately, a lot of the people in the book I have relationships with from all that time in Billboard. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I was there from 2013 to 2020, so it really helped for the book already having a relationship with a lot of these people, because one thing I learned quickly from doing a book on my own after years of being at like a big fancy publication was that it's like way harder to get people to talk. And you don't have like that at billboard.com email address. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was the stuff I was passionate about when I was at Billboard. So, you know, I was, you know, because Billboard is a pop thing, obviously, like Fall Boy and Paramore, Panic at the Disco, those were priorities for Billboard. And I was like their rock person. So I was, you know, I was 
passionate about that stuff. And I was interviewing those artists a lot when I was at Billboard. So they knew me. And then, you know, a lot of other bands I had crossed paths with interviewed when I was at Billboard, like, I mean, the Under Oath guys who are great interviews in the book, I sat down with them in the Billboard studio, actually after doing a podcast with them about their album, I remember for that Warp Tour oral history I mentioned, this was in like 2018. I did it because Warp was ending that year and 2005 was the biggest year. So I did an oral history about that for Billboard. I remember like sitting down with the Under Oath guys and you know, hit it off with them. So when I pitched the the book to their people, the manager Randy remembered me, and he was I was like, oh, sick, mm-hmm. you know, cool. Randy who manages Under Oath and Starting On, you know, mm-hmm. um, Jimmy World I got to know from my time at Billboard, uh, Chris Caraba I interviewed I believe just once, but that dude has an incredible memory, and he remembered me <laughs> <laughs> when I when I reached out to him for the book. Uh, he was it was just. It was just a gift to talk to Chris. He's such a, he's such a wonderful person. It's he's the sort of person like you 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 wonder like is this guy really this like cool and this nice? You're like uh-huh. maybe suspicious at first. You're like no, but then you're really like no, he actually is this cool and this. Nice. I love that. <laughs> you know, reading through this book as someone who I the, the these were my like my my teen years. I I came up listening to all of these bands and. I was so pleased and interested to see how much new information is in this book because I'm I was a little bit uh, I was excited to read it but but I'm like I was following these bands obsessively I feel like I know everything you know mm-hmm. and so to go through and see how candid a lot of these people are and hearing them talk about just different not even just specific events but just different kind of like uh, viewpoints and there's a lot of really cool stuff specifically in in the first section uh reading about race trader which for listeners um was a band that some of the folks in fallout boy were in previous to fallout boy that was really fascinating that i'd never heard them talk about before and there's stuff like that all throughout the book these a lot of these are people who have done a lot of interviews for a very long time and are probably uh it can be a little rote for them and so do you feel like there was something specific you did that made people feel more comfortable or more willing to be open? I just wanted to talk to people about things that they weren't on the record talking about before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you like you were saying, so much of this stuff has just been covered a bunch of times. And I know that fans of bands like Fall Out Boy, you know... If you're just going through stuff in a book that's on their Wikipedia page, they're probably going to stop reading because they know it all. Right. Well, actually, a lot of them, right, right. A, lot, a lot of them will probably keep reading because they love fans. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you actually want them to like like the book yeah, and go. say say it's good, I realize that you need to come with stuff that's like not already covered in like a Rolling mm-hmm. Stone or Alternative Press interview from 2006. Totally. So like yourself, I read so much stuff on these bands back in the day. I have a very obsessive memory with things like this. <laughs> so it really didn't take much on my part to be like, oh, okay, I've never heard Pete talk about this before, for instance. And Race Trader was one of those things. Uh, pretty shockingly, from what I could tell, he had never really been asked or talked about the Race Trader days 
aside from just really like in passing in small bits in interviews because I couldn't find anything on it. Mm -hmm. So in approaching these interviews, you know, I didn't have all the time in the world. So I was like, what can I get for this book that's going to get people like yourself excited, people who have been reading this stuff all that they can get their hands on for the past 20 plus years. Plus what is the stuff that hasn't been asked? It's also very exciting. So yeah, I'm glad you bring up the race trader stuff. Cause that was a lot of fun to report on those shows sounded crazy Yeah, before, yeah, my, before my time, but like, <laughs> man, it's amazing. I'm going to try to not just have this be a Jersey fest. It's really hard for me not to do that as someone who um, is, is kind of like aggressively from Jersey, but there's a section. I'm sorry if this feels a little uh, a little chaotic, <laughs> but you. But speaking of race trader, another thing I thought of that that really stuck with me, and also speaking of Fallout Boy, actually. So to bring those two together, one of the other moments that I think is really interesting, and I was really happy to hear this side from, was the guys in Lifetime talking about their their 2005 album after they'd been you know, broken up for years because you know lifetime was a band that that had a couple of albums that didn't really i mean again they're one of my favorite bands but i was way too young when they were playing live and i think that's true for a lot of folks who were who count them as a favorite now so that was their first album that had been kind of released while i was old enough to know and be excited about it and i it had always seemed to me like they kind of had a bad taste in their mouth about it the way it had been reported on and it's uh, there's a really lovely section where they talk about it pretty straightforwardly. That's a section that listeners, you should pick up the book. And when you do um, I'm point you to that to that section in particular. Yeah, that was an interesting one again to ask about, because I had never heard the aftermath of what Lifetime thought about working with Wentz and putting out their self-titled album, their comeback album with Decadence. Uh, once Fall Out Boy were already pop superstars. Mm-hmm. I remember the album coming out. I remember it getting, a, not a lot, but like in the alternative press, Absolute Punk world, it got a lot of attention. The reviews were kind of mixed. The vibe mm-hmm. of the reviews was like, oh, it's good to have what Lifetime back, but this album's not as good as like Hello Bastards and Jersey's <laughs> Best Dancers. And oh, it's also out on Pete Wentz's label to Cadence. That's, isn't that interesting? And the album kind of came and went. They didn't do a ton of touring behind it. They had life stuff going on. Yeah, so I when I got a hold, fortunately, Dan and Ari chatted for the book. I asked them, and I feel like, you know, they're not, like, bitter in 2020. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. Pete, you know, having, you know, major label distribution when we were used to Jane <laughs> Tree Records, but... <laughs> I got the impression that they were told or they thought they were told that it was all independent. And then like they saw Warner brothers on their, their invoices and they were like, huh, what's that? Interesting. Yeah. So I think they kind of felt like fish out of water a little bit with mm-hmm. doing that one album with Pete. It was really lovely to hear. And it's what I'd always, the impression I'd always gotten, but to have confirmed on both sides. And then we can stop talking about <laughs> fall boy and lifetime, even though again, I could talk about both of those forever um, is that you know, Pete really did it because he wanted another Lifetime record. And that is a kind of power that not everybody gets. And so, like, I get it. I get exercising that power if you can. But I also, I don't know. I think I would lose sleep every night of my life if I found out afterward that maybe they weren't so happy 
<laughs> with it. So it's interesting. But I, I think that that whole story is really fascinating to me. And I was very happy to get to hear, you know, from the from the sources themselves. We um we should jump into some music, though. Let's do it. What's uh the first song you want to talk about? Yeah. So in talking about the stuff that really feels like it moved the wheels of the book, the songs that feel like they were really pivotal to this. You asked me for a few and, you know, the, the years on the book are 99 through 08. And the first one is one that came out in 99. Get up, kids. Ten minutes. Ten minutes to downtown. It's ten minutes too far. When my friends all say I'm crazy. Maybe I'm being selfish. Maybe I'm just scared. Maybe I'm just Don't be gone when I get home. I need you there. Maybe they're not really a band that had hits, but maybe it's their biggest punk hit, so to speak. Yeah. To me, the Get Up Kids, and the book starts in Jersey, so the Get Up Kids, you know, they're from the Midwest, um, but the book really focuses on a big show they played in Jersey, but mm-hmm. tie them in that way. The Get Up Kids, to me, feel like the first band that was really a sign that this scene could be a pop thing. Mm-hmm. Like, their songs are so melodic, so catchy, so written with choruses and catchiness in mind. And also they did things back in the day, like they were cuter and poppier than a lot of the bands that they came (laughs) up around. Like they were courted by major labels before most of these bands were, they never signed with one, but I believe it was, believe it was Jive. It was the band, it was the label, (laughs) there was this band, (laughs) I remember Matt Matt Pryor from Get Up Kids telling me in an interview, there was this band, this like ska, not ska, but like a um, swing revival band called Cherry Poppin' Daddies from back then. <laughs> yeah, there was. Yeah, they, they were one of the other bands that this like A&R had <laughs> who they were using to sell, like I said, I believe it was Jive Records to Get Up Kids. Um, and that's a, that's That's my favorite sentence that's ever been said on this podcast, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah. Cherry Poppin' Dad yeah. is amazing. I think they might have also had Weedus, but I'm not sure about not I'm just I'm just talking now. But anyway, <laughs> the get up kids, a lot of a lot of these bands did have success signing to a major and it was a good career thing for them. Get up kids signing with Vagrant in retrospect, I think totally was the best move for them. Cause I mean Vagrant did big things for them. Vagrant was in their peak. Something to write home about sold like 200,000 copies, which was crazy for that back then for an independent label. I think the reason why the Get Up Kids never became like Dashboard or Jimmy World level success is just because they chose to not pursue more pop centric music as the years progress. Mm -hmm. I think that more has to do with why the Get Up Kids never became the stars that maybe some people thought they might be in 99. But something to write home about it's such a pop record and it's such a great mm-hmm. record. And I think it's really like a harbinger of things to come with this book. They're also a band that I always think of. So 2000, I was a freshman in high school and the cooler kids who were like seniors at the time, like I always noticed them in Get Up Kids t-shirts. They were like one of the bands I discovered by looking at like patches and t-shirts from the kids who were older than me. 
Yeah, it definitely seems like they had a strong presence in Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's funny how bands like that Jersey kind of sometimes just decides they're one of ours. Like, and I think Get Up Kids, and maybe it's because of that show in particular, really, that kind of set it off um, for them. But I feel like they're one of those bands that were like, yeah, but they're kind of ours, too. You know, <laughs> total side note, I just saw them open last year for um, uh, Jawbreaker on their their uh, tour up the East Coast. They played a few dates and it was just like one of the happiest, most explosive groups of people I've seen at a show like that in a very long time. And especially for a show like, like Jawbreaker fans can be a little more reserved, I think. But there were like a lot of people who were there for both of those bands. And it was like uh, just a very, I don't know, bright beautiful moment it was like a little teary-eyed watching that that show that sounds nice yeah it definitely sounds better that you caught that one instead of one of the shows the Lemonheads opened on that tour not not great yeah apparently not great oh I think you think you definitely have the better opener experience with uh get up kids oh I want to I I saw that and then I saw one of the ones at the knitting factory with uh shell shag and, and gethard who's chris gethard who's a, a friend of mine and also in the book but but none of the Lemonheads shows that's uh get up kids 10 minutes do we want to just jump in into another song sure yeah so when you asked me for these songs to sort of tell the story of the book it just got me thinking of what were the songs that pushed things forward or what were the mm-hmm. or the albums and their most important songs which came out and all the bands in this scene were like, oh shit, we got to rewrite our whole album. You know, this changes everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like those sorts of albums. So for 99, it really feels like Get Up Kids or Through Being Cool, take your pick. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Through Being Cool, just being a hardcore record, but being so poppy in a way that they got shit for it. Yeah. which is like kind of novel, really novel to think of now. Mm-hmm. But like they got so much shit because like the band is on the cover in a cute picture and the songs have choruses, but it's on a hardcore label. Like, oh my God. Like that's basically like in a nutshell, like what made emo big, you know? Yeah. Like, hardcore bands doing poppy songs and being cuter or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, you kind of just distilled the whole thing down to, to one sentence. That's that's. I mean, obviously, and you in your introduction, you you say something similar, but also there's obviously like more complexity to it. Your your book is definitely more complex than that, but it is interesting to see how much kind of has kind of like blown out and and splintered out from that kind of core idea right there. Yeah, I mean, if if you were to go back in time as a manager, you could just be like, hey, hardcore fans, (laughs) you want to get popular, get cuter and get catchier. (laughs) And probably probably there were like A&Rs or managers or whatnot back then almost literally saying that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe maybe, maybe some of them are in my book, who knows. (laughs) But yeah, so Thursday being one of those. Yeah, so, huh. Which is interesting because I wouldn't really call Thursday cute or even, I mean, there's like pop elements to them, but I wouldn't call them like a poppy band.
I think Thursday is just, it's like one of those instances where something great comes out of an artist that's shooting for something. And because they're kind of green, they don't quite hit the mark, mm -hmm. but they wind up doing something totally new by accident. Totally, yeah. Like huge Joy Division fans and also just super embedded in, you know, New Brunswick hardcore back then mm -hmm. is, you know, well known. And I think like the aim was to kind of do sort of like, what if Ian Curtis fronted like a DC hardcore band? But it just sort of sounds like this totally different thing that wound up becoming the template for like the entire Victory Records roster four years later. Yeah. yeah. You know, this really melodic, very emotional, very literate, you know, a lot of these bands shot for literate, but didn't quite get there. But <laughs> Drag all of them. <laughs> uh, you know, heavy very emotional very literate just the sort of band that you could like this is my life now this yeah. this thursday is my life you know mm -hmm. and even better coming from new brunswick at a time when that was really the epicenter of where all this was happening so mm -hmm. sort of half on purpose half by accident thursday feels like a really really important one for tying this all together and you know the song in the early days was understanding in a car crash Thursday is also it's funny uh, uh of of the bands you sent over three or four on this list of six are bands where the first time I heard a song I think was live and I remember being like I've this sounds totally unlike anything else I've, I've ever heard and I'm gonna need to hear everything they have now and Thursday I told myself when I went into this, I wasn't going to make this a podcast where I just like reminisce for an hour and you have to deal with that. But um, my first like real kind of show show that wasn't either a tiny local show or something huge like uh, Y100 Fest is the radio festival in Philly that used to be um, a thing every year was uh, Midtown. Weirdly, I think they like co-headlined a show with The Living End, that band from Australia, um, with Thursday and Hot Rod Circuit and I think River City High weirdly it was like a um it's a show where like there were so many bands that ended up becoming favorites of mine that I had to google it to make sure I didn't make that up in my head um but I specifically remember Thursday and just being so blown away like they just especially then were doing something so different I think that was like 2000 maybe 2000 or 2001 that's very cool I never saw them that that early I kind of, so with all this music in general, I I kind of became a super fan, like following everything circa 03, mm -hmm. 02, I like knew the names and like knew it was big, but was still just kind of like a very general pop MTV, vaguely interested in music person. Mm -hmm. And then with the stuff before that, I really try to just, do my absolute due diligence, listen to lots of podcasts like this was the scene, talk to lots of these people because that stuff was before my time. But yeah, what was, I would love to hear about that. What was it like seeing Thursday like in that era? 
Well, I think so. It was like I said, it was I was pretty young. I would have been I think it was 2001. So I would have been 14 or 15. And it's not that like I had my finger on the pulse. I had a friend whose older brother was a lot cooler than us and would take us to shows. Um, And he was really into Midtown. And I remember it was after Save the World came out. And he said, like, I've probably told this on the podcast before because the album hadn't even been out a year yet. And he was like, you guys should pick this up because Midtown's going to blow up. Um, And he was like a high school senior. It's not like he was, but he just kind of knew. They were one of those bands at the time, too, where I think I think a lot of people there were there to see The Living End because they had that that single roll on that was huge for a minute. I don't think they got a ton of Jersey. Like, if if you're not familiar with them, it's because they didn't get our Jersey. They didn't get a. They weren't like huge in the States, but that single for some reason really popped off. Um, and it's a very kind of poppy, kind of weird. Like, I think their bassist plays, played like a stand up bass, if I remember correctly. Um, and so the people in that crowd weren't there for Thursday. And they were one of those bands where you watch people be like, not totally sure what they were watching. But by the end, they were just kind of like also obsessed to like everybody moving closer to the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It was just, uh, again, that was, what, 20 some years ago for, for me now. So but that's that's what I remember specifically. Yeah. It's a wild time. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. And another thing with this. So that that song, Understanding in a Car Crash, came out in 02. Another band I think is really important to point out for that year and for that kind of music, the streamier side of things is the used because the more I worked on the book, the more I realized like culturally Thursday definitely feels more important. You know, they were the band that came up through the basement shows in a scene that really was important. And, you know, they, you know, put out their first album on a real DIY kind of label, Eyeball. Then they put out it out on an independent label, Vic- Victory, and then then went major label. So they kind of had this pedigree of coming up, you know, quote unquote, the right way. Whereas like the used were straight to major label. They worked with John Feldman on their first album. They sound, album sounds like a million bucks. You know what I mean? But man, they were that like taste of ink was huge and really nothing that came out of the hardcore world really got big like that or sounded like that that got and they were like you know Bert was on the osbournes then and Mm -hmm. they did trl and there really wasn't a precursor to a band like the used being in the mainstream yeah what's kind of interesting is like 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 Amy Fiddler in the book says how in a funny way, like bands like Limp Biscuit and Papa Roach kind of paved the way for this mm-hmm. stuff. And just the fact that it was a rock band that was screaming and in the ears of some person who works at MTV, that was probably like not that different. So it's like, oh, well, rock band screaming. Okay, we can have Thursday, we can have the used. But yeah, the used uh, self-titled... <laughs> Man, I didn't really give that album the, uh, the time it probably deserved when I was this age. But uh, album holds up extremely well. Great album. And the reason that My Chemical Romance got signed has so much to do with the used and the success of that album. So much. I mean, 
My Chemical Romance obviously deeply intertwined with Thursday and coming up on Eyeball Records and Jeff Rickley producing their first album. But the more I researched for the book, I was like, man, Thursday made MCR, helped birth them in a way, but I don't think they signed to Warner Brothers Records and I don't know if they get as big as they did so quickly without the used. That's that's fascinating. They're a band, I have to admit, like they're they're singles I was into and I knew them as being really tied up with my chemical romance. Like they like toured together a lot and stuff, I think. But they weren't a band that I ever did the deep dive on. And I don't know, as you were saying that, what it was that I didn't click with. And I wonder if being a little bit and it's funny Fall Out Boy still is my favorite band they have been since I was in high school um, oh yeah so like it it's funny to say something like this but I wonder if it's because they were kind of on the earlier edge of it of being like one of those bands but on TRL and like you said you know Bert I think dated Kelly Osbourne maybe but yeah. like you said was on the Osbournes and I wonder if as a kid I maybe had my nose in the air about that a little Bit before it was kind of everybody decided it was sort of okay to want to be on TRL and to do all of that. They I might have done them a disservice back then. They just they they came from Utah, so it was like they were hardcore kids. Yeah, but there was no like eyeball records and Jeff Rickley's basement to like yeah. get, you know to get to going in the scene. There, it was just kind of the wild west. It's so and interesting. The first people who came calling were, you know. Um, uh, John Feldman, who now is just like a huge, you know, kingmaker in the major label pop punk mainstream emo scene. But back then he was just like the guy from Goldfinger who would try to launch and produce a couple bands that didn't really hit. And the used were kind of like his last try. And the used blew up. He produced the self-titled album, Taste of Ink, Caught On. And yeah, like the the used didn't come from new jersey or long island so they didn't have like a cool scene to attach themselves yeah. to though they were like all into hardcore all into a lot of the same sort of like straight edge and vegan bands that like wentz or jeff rickley or mikey way were into back then they were just out in the middle of nowhere so the the first people that came calling were like john feldman and then warner brothers records so it was just like they became this straight to major label, then TRL, then pop band, MTV band. So in a lot of ways, people stuck their noses up at them and thought of like, oh, Thursday is so much more authentic. Or even like Fall Out Boy, because they like knew to do their first album on Fuel by Ram and on an indie, even though it was an incubator deal and they were getting Island Records money from the of beginning. Of course, yeah. You know? The used were just this major label thing right away. So I think some people who were like more from the scenes we came from didn't take them seriously. But man, that the first album, I'll go to bat for hard. That first used album really holds up. Very slickly produced, but in the best way, because it just brings out how heavy and like melodic and what an incredible vocalist Bert McCracken is. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, even like I said, as a much more casual kind of uh fan i don't even know if that's but as someone who kind of yeah did not dive as deep into them uh definitely i'm 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 gonna jump back in now in 2023 i'm suddenly gonna be the used number one fan watch um you it they were a really fascinating part of the book for all of the reasons that you said and even just hearing how different it was 
for them creating music together. And like, and like you said, not having this scene behind them. And something that really struck me about the book all along was how much of it is like different people pass. Like it'll be like uh, there'll be a section where like Gabe from Midtown will be like, and then I gave blah, 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 so-and-so's tape. And that's how they heard this. And then that person gave this other person this tape and just how connected it all is and how you sort of don't have any of these bands without any of the other bands if that makes sense but then then the used is this weird little island on their own there are a couple of them in the book like that i think but it's such a contrast yeah and like we were talking about things that like are less out there haven't been reported on as much from just hearing about little bits and pieces of the used origin story you know mm-hmm. mormonism in utah and like Bird having a rough time with drugs before the band. I was like, there's something here. Mm-hmm. And it's been reported on a little bit, but probably not in a long time. And probably no one's talked to them about it in a very long yeah. time. So I was like, this seems worth digging into. Totally. I'm glad you did. It's... There, Yeah, just an interesting case in all of this for sure. Yeah, totally. With like understanding in a car crash getting big in like 01 into 02 and Taste of Ink getting big in 02 into yeah. 03. We're moving. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, let's keep moving then. Let's uh, let's talk about another song. Yeah, so I threw in Cute Without the E by Taking Back Sunday. Your lipstick is colored up by the angel. I know exactly what goes on. friends such a pivotal album it felt really pivotal back when i was like a scene kid in 2004 and Mm -hmm. it still feels that way now Mm -hmm. you know in a funny way going back and listening to their catalog i don't know if it's a funny way but the the two albums that came later are so much better produced and in some ways i'm like actually just like if you take away like punk stuff and like the fact that like yo this was the first tbs album like this is the one that changed the game it's like man uh like louder now that album's hard to mess with but yeah i mean i had no idea which direction you were gonna whether you were gonna that's the very interesting oh man that album is the way that album is produced and mixed and the players on that album because by then that was like the tbs lineup with rubano and fred mm-hmm. incredible players they added so much to that band live and in the studio totally, so, yeah. tbs just like went shooting up in a lot of ways after tell all your friends but yeah mm-hmm. real ones know that it's <laughs> It's it's cute without the E and it's tell all your friends. That album is that that song in that album it just feels it just feels like high school. Yeah. In a lot of ways. It just feels like high school. Just with like the trashiness of it, and, like all the he said, she said. I feel like just like with all those lyrics, they just make me think of yelling and pointing at someone. Which is a lot of this music. 
when you think about it, the kind of the lasting effect of like how, like it's like how you would act if you were out with your friends and one of these songs came on or you were, or you were actually seeing the band live. It's like, you know, maybe you're, you're getting in the pit or crowd surfing, but I think the primary thing is yelling along and pointing. <laughs> pointing. Yell- and yelling along and pointing, I think, is <laughs> most encapsulated by Cute Without the A. That's so accurate. I have no no notes, no follow-up. That is so <laughs> completely accurate. I can't. I, I like need to take a second. It's... <laughs> yeah. This... This... I have a really hard time being unbiased about this band and this album because I understand the issues. I do. I mean, it just, it makes me think that a lot of the reason why some of the lyrics wouldn't fly now is because the album, an album like that has happened already and has made its impact. That's true. Yeah. grew up with it kids thought about it when they were 14 and then thought about it when they were 24 and 30 and they move on and they think about things differently. So it, it fit a certain place in their lives Mm -hmm. and it's not all for positive, but it fit a certain place in their lives in 2002 or whatever. And a lot of the reason why it probably would be received very differently if it came out in 2023 is because people have grown and, Yeah, the world has grown. Yeah, yeah. And I don't necessarily feel that way about a lot of these other albums, though. It it is a very time capsule album, I think, Um, in a way that sometimes feels really good, like with this song in particular. I mean, they also, uh, you talk, um, or you don't talk. Actually, now that I say that that way, this is something else I was thinking about. Uh, Writing this book or, or putting this book together as an oral history Mm-hmm. Did you find it hard not <laughs> to want to maybe editorialize a, a little? When you're do- when you're doing an oral history as a journalist and as an author, when the book is released, the way it sort of is presented is even though it is presented as as a collection of quotes, in a way, I wouldn't say they're in- necessarily endorsed by the author. But the, it's like the author is on the copyright page right. yeah. with their name. So in a sense, the author is behind them. Well, and you still so, have to, I mean, you're there's an argument sort of being, you, you still have to decide who comes in when and which characters are introduced at what moment and, and you know, what what areas and what what ideas to focus on and all. So I'm also not saying like, I know that there's more of like a, a process and art to this than just being like collecting a bunch of interviews and then chopping them up. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, there's definitely a curatorial side of it in deciding who you interview, what you ask them, of what they say, what actually goes in the book and mm-hmm. what does not. So like I was saying, it's not necessarily that the author like endorses or is like saying or purporting each quote, but also your name is behind it. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying, it's intentional where the author puts things and how they present them. So yeah, like for, like, for instance, I like one thing like in the taking back Sunday, brand new chapter, um, one of the speakers is, is like, 
you know, they're talking about how Taking Back Sunday and Brand New mended the fences for a time on that tour in 02 and became friends. And there's uh, someone, I think it's Neil Rubenstein, who's like, it was Neil Rubenstein, who was a friend of Taking Back Sunday's, played in a uh, band called Sons of Abraham, who were mm-hmm. friends with them. He screams on their albums. And he's just like, yeah, well, Jesse Lazy turned out to be a fucking asshole anyway. <laughs> and I remember like my editor being like, okay, yeah. Do we want to like introduce this like at this point in the book though? And I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I think like this chapter could use a reminder of where we stand with this because we did, you know, we like we, we went through the Jesse Lacey situation. It's laid out in a very journalistic way in the intro. But as things get going, I was like, okay, there. It's useful to have a reminder here of like mm-hmm. who this person is and like where we're at with this person. A callback to that. So it's not as if we're forgetting that as the narrative gets going. Yeah, that's that's really thoughtful. Let's let's talk about another song, and I know it's coming next, and I'm very excited. Just so you know, so don't you let our listeners know what's up next? Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about Fall Boy. Where is your boy tonight? Grand Theft Autumn. Hell yeah! It's the name of the book. I'm thinking I maybe I maybe put it in this little list because it is the name of the book and it's my favorite <laughs> Fall Out Boy song. Now that I think about what, what I was saying about what were the songs that really got the wheels turning for the scene, I think it's more Cork Tree and more Sugar We're Going Down for Fall Out Boy. But like I was saying, I'm partial to Grand Theft Autumn. Where is your boy tonight? I hope he is a gentleman. Maybe he won't find out what I know. You were the last good thing about this part of town. I know that from doing my interviews, they were super influenced by the Long Island stuff, by Brand New and Taking Back Sunday during this time. And which is why I feel like where Fall Out Boy was their most influential in guiding the scene was Fall Out Boy's next album, Mm -hmm. where I think they settled into themselves a little bit more. But that being said, Take This to Your Grave is my favorite Fall Out Boy album. It was one of the first albums I listened to where I was like, oh, this makes me feel cool and different. <laughs> Which is like funny to say about Fallout Boy, because they're such a pop band. And even in this era of Take This to Your Grave, I think they'd still been on MTV and like little bits, maybe like the Dead on Arrival video played for 30 seconds in between shows. But for the most part, they still felt below the level of like a Jimmy World or a Dashboard or the U's in this time. They still kind of felt like, oh, this band's like underground. I have a very specific memory of okay. Fall Out Boy being featured on a U here at first on MTV before Cork Tree with after um after Take This came out. And so it I, I feel like I remember that and then nothing like MTV or anything from them for for 
a little while until probably like you said Cork Tree. But it was like it was like MTV kind of knew maybe like we're going to keep our eye on this band because it seems like they're getting a lot of attention on their own. Um, and we want to make sure that we kind of get to have our, our fingerprint on them a little bit if they do end up blowing up. Yeah, I'm sure MTV had some people in their ears from the uh, the publicity side and the management mm-hmm. side that were more so than your typical Fueled by Ramen in 2003 release. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I threaten constantly on this podcast to do an all Fallout Boy episode, and this is the closest <laughs> that I've gotten, I think. Um, and I... They're a band who they I I think like you said talking about Cork Tree as that pivot is exactly I think is exactly right because if you were a fan of Fall Out Boy when Take This came out you weren't it's like people didn't have like an idea of who they were it, at least in Jersey maybe in Chicago I know it was probably different um, but at least in South Jersey anyway I don't know um, people didn't have you said Fall Out Boy was your favorite band then like people didn't have a reaction to that in the way that they did after Cork Tree and I think we sort of like to talk about um you know uh the the middle section of this book being about 2005 when things really did kind of explode um we didn't really have anything like that in our scene before in our scene in in these scenes before them really right like that's kind of yeah they just kept on taking it bigger and bigger it was like in 2002 you had the middle on SNL and fall up or dashboard to the MTV unplugged. Right. Right. Yeah. And you know, it's like, Oh my God, emo is the new thing. It's the new youth thing. It's huge. And then it's like, Oh wait, it can get way, way bigger. And that was Oh five with fall boy, Cork tree and my chemical romance three tears for sweet revenge. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the reason why I was saying that I think Cork Tree pushed the scene more than uh, the first Fall Boy album, because Wentz, specifically Wentz, just wanted to be Jay-Z, basically. <laughs> he was like the mogul, and no one before in this scene was remotely like that. Mm-hmm. Or if they were, it never left their head. Yeah. Or yeah, it did. Right. It did not come close to fruition. Mm-hmm. You know, Jay. You know, Pete just had just had all these like grandiose visions for the band and doing a fashion label on the side and like launching his own label, which is obviously like a punk thing to do, but launching his own label very much in a pop sense of like, yeah. yo, I'm gonna break a band mm-hmm. the way like Kanye would be like, I'm gonna break Kid Cudi. Yeah, you know. That's what Fall Out Boy trying to like, you know, break Panic at the Disco was like launch their first big artist, mm-hmm. Panic and Jim Glass Heroes, who were right about the same time for Decadence. Yep. So Wentz and Fall Out Boy via Cork Tree in 05 feels like a lot of ways in pushing things forward for better or worse in the pop direction because Wentz just <laughs> wanted to do things that really no one else in this world wanted to do. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe this is me being like, mm, kind of like a, a little uh, elder millennial of me, but 
it feels like and like like thinking of of Dan Ozzy's sellout and how that doesn't really mean the same thing anymore like like we don't really bat an eye at, at bands who are sponsored by you know like who do like product tie-ins that kind of thing like we don't really care about that anymore um or like bands really wanting to blow up on like tiktok or whatever it's like it's it just kind of is the way things are and that wasn't the case before because even with like you know, Dashboard doing MTV Unplugged. And there's, uh, again, in your book, a really great section uh, recounting that. Um, you can feel there's some, like, reticence there for for Dashboard and his band doing that. Um, and I don't think you you get that as much with bands anymore. And I think, I, th- I was going to say, I think it's a good thing. I don't know if I think it's a good or a bad thing. It's just the way things are now. And I that wasn't the case, I think, before 2005, really. Like Fall Out Boy definitely got the sellout label thrown at them in a way I don't think bands do as much in 2023. Yeah, what you just said, I think it was like, I'm not sure if it's good or bad. It's the way things turned out. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but that's so true. I mean, time goes on and just words change. I mean, there's still things that, you know, the kids call people out online for, mm-hmm. you know but it's not selling out. I mean, I think just one thing that pops to my head is the word gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. Out back in like the aughts, you know, gatekeeping was a word, but no one used it as a thing you would get mad at a person online for. Yeah. The way I just remember it is kind of like when I was starting being a journalist, people would say like, oh, who are like the gatekeepers in hip hop? Oh, it's it's this label head and this talk show host, you know, and this A&R. It's just, it was like not positive or negative. It was just a neutral word. Yeah, totally. That's so interesting. Like, you know, new generations, partially because of societal, like real rights and wrongs in society and also just teenage bullshit, you know, new <laughs> generations find things to get riled up about. Yeah, I think it's a lot harder now. And it's again, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, but you, it's, I imagine it must be harder for younger people to be as kind of like, oh, I'm taking, I'm going to take, I'm going to say it, but I want you to know I'm taking it back as I say it to get like kind of protective and banned in your pocket about bands these days. Um, Weirdly, I think they do, but it's it like, but I'm thinking of bands like the way people are obsessive over like K-pop or or Paramore is maybe a good example where the fans are like rabid and really protective and obsessive, but there are these huge bands like you don't. And maybe I'm just out of out of touch at this point, but I just don't think you see that as much for smaller bands as they're coming up the way you did before, because you kind of can't keep band secret for yourself anymore. Um, yeah. And the with the k-pop bands and with bands like paramore the fans are rooting for them to sell yeah exactly it's a competition you know who can be higher on the billboard chart exactly you know and i think like the for the for like the diy kids by now they just know that it's lame to try to like hold on to a band in your back Mm -hmm. pocket and also i think by now they just know that you can't for any amount of time it's like if it's actually good, once, you know, once the wheels start turning, you know, maybe it's not going to be like in the Spotify top 50, but 
but it'll find its crowd. And if it's good, it'll be like a thing in the DIY community or like the, uh, like the indie pop community. It's, it doesn't take it, you know, two years of gestating for fallout boy to go from the release of take this to your grave to being on MTV anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, someone puts up like a good first indie pop song and it catches on and within like that community of like indie pop bedroom pop people on like twitter and tiktok it becomes a thing very quickly mm-hmm. so people know that you just you can't even yeah. play that game anymore. yeah that's it's so fascinating that's exactly what you said like they're rooting for their bands to be huge now in a way that it just it just wasn't like fallout boy fallout boy's probably the first band i remember I don't remember. I'm I'm not actually sure if this is true, at it, but it doesn't matter for what I'm gonna say. But they're maybe one of the first bands I remember getting into early, and then watching them really blow up and trying to be like it. It like you said, it was two years, but then it was very quick. It seems like um, I was looking. I was a, like a strange little obsessive child, and I used to keep a journal of all of my shows. And like the first time I saw Fall Out Boy, they were opening for. Mest, who I don't even think is a band anymore. And then two months later, I think they played Skate and Surf. And then the next year was when they did that Warp Tour, that like infamous Warp Tour where the stage collapsed and stuff. And it's like to watch that happen and have some people try like be really resentful of that um, and wanting to, you know, uh, again, like I said, keep them in your pocket. It's I think. Yeah, I think I've decided it's a good thing that we don't see that happen so much anymore. I don't know. Although maybe that's just the like inherent consumerism that we're all I mean, like capitalism that we're all trained to kind of root for that. I'm like, no, you should want your bands to be the biggest thing in the world. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like watching Fall Out Boy. Cause I was a, a lot of the same way with them, like watching them from when they were kind of a baby band and seeing them grow up very quickly. It was just like, where, where does it end? Like how much bigger can they get? You know? Because they didn't just get big as a rock band. They just got big as a pop artist. As we go from Cork Tree in 05 to Infinity on High in 07. And just the kind of uh, like tabloid celebrity that mm-hmm. Pete Wentz became. I was just thinking they were like in movies and, and, and in TV shows. And yeah, it's just an interesting... Yeah, and I mean, it was great material for the book, and it really mm-hmm. sets this era apart, because, I mean, like, Billy Joe Armstrong never embraced celebrity mm-hmm. to that extent. I mean, people definitely pushed Kurt Cobain to be that kind of celebrity, but he definitely didn't embrace it. Right. You know? So, Fall Boy, in some ways, was... Or, or just we're talking about Fall Boy, but generally we're talking about Pete Wentz. Mm-hmm. He embraced celebrity in a way that maybe no one from punk did before him. Right. Yeah. You know, g- going through this, it's like, okay, I'm trying to sell this book and make it compelling. Fall Boy, not as iconic as a band like Nirvana, you know, didn't sell as much as Dookie, but oh shit, like, Pete Wentz is maybe the biggest celebrity of any of these people and mm-hmm. also like a really interesting person who did all sorts of wild shit, like the Lifetime album. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he was putting together 
like his own room at the VMAs that Jay-Z was around for. And also like getting Kim Kardashian to be in the thanks for the memories video, like all this wild shit that he was doing in like the same year. It's crazy. Yeah. He's always seemed like he's got a little bit of that little kid mentality of like, when I grow up, I'm going to own a pizza shop where bands play. And I also have like, and he's just like, he just did his like grown up version of that. And he kind of keeps, I know he's obviously quieted down in a lot of ways in his older years, but he still kind of is doing that. It's really fascinating. Yeah. I think that Even for someone like him with all this ambition, it got a little bit out of control and probably felt very out of control around the time that Fall Out Boy went on hiatus mm-hmm. in 09. Mm-hmm. And so Fall Out Boy comes back with Save Rock and Roll in 2013 and they they played it well because they were just as big, maybe bigger. Wentz was still doing all the press he could do but wasn't doing as much of the ridiculous stuff yeah. as he was doing in the late aughts or this like beefing with bands like the killers where it's like, <laughs> Oh man, are we sure this guy is okay? Yeah, like, yeah. like it seems like, and he's, I mean, he's still like, you know, doing really compelling feature stories for GQ and stuff like that. So he's, you know, he still knows his way around the celebrity verse, but it seems like a more measured, healthier version. of Yeah. That. They're a band where it's like they went on hiatus, I assumed uh, heartbrokenly that we'd never hear from them again. And then they seem to have not seem to. I mean, they're back. What's what? Ten years now Um, back. Like you said, more measured, healthier, uh, more even in in a way that's been really it seems to be really good for them. But then they also did just put out an album. Did you (laughs) have you seen the Crinal? Oh, yeah. Is that real, though? Is that (laughs) That real? I mean, it's a total like gimmick. Like, I think they only made fifty of them, and it's a, a did it as like a giveaway. But I, as far as I know, what? So again, if you're not if you don't follow Fall Out Boy the way that I do, um, their their new album so much for Stardust, which I love, by the way. Um, they uh, press fifty of them to what they're calling Crinal, which is final with tears <laughs> inside. Um, I think Pete Wentz's tears. Uh, I guess it could be that who knows if they're actually tears, but apparently there are 50 of them that are giving away. But they are a band who, to to say like they left and came back more measured, even healthier. They're also a band who made paintings with their own blood. And that was that was real back in the day. So I think that's a good (laughs) example of like a band still being themselves, but maybe in a better, you know, trade the blood for tears in, in your in your art. This may be good. I don't know. Yeah, there is a story that's not that didn't it didn't wind up in the book because there wasn't really a place for it. But like, Travi told me this story where he was hanging out with Pete, and they were doing some kind of drugs, and like Pete accidentally lit them on fire. They were they were doing some sort of artwork for some <laughs> some kind of like brand installation, you know, as they would do in like right. 08 or whatever this was, and. <laughs> I think they were both kind of out of it. But yeah, Pete lit Travi on fire by mistake and they had to defuse the situation. <laughs> See, so again, it's 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 good. You take the break, you come back, and instead you just cry into your albums and release those <laughs> instead. Stop lighting your friends on fire. Uh, amazing. Um, 
I could obviously talk about this band forever, but we've got a couple of more songs and you've been so kind and generous with your time. So let's uh, let's keep rolling. Who's next? Yeah. So going from this talk of Fall Out Boys, Big Pop Age, we got to talk about MCR, mm-hmm. who are very much the brother-sister bands in my book. They're really the two stars, co-leads, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Black Parade in 06 feels, I know it's it's the next to last song I gave you, but it, it feels like the last in this line of really pivotal albums in the evolution of the scene, in the boom of the scene going pop. Because I think after that album, no one could really one-up that. so ambitious that no one could push it further it wasn't like oh okay like through being cool uh taking back sunday can take this further with tell all your friends like there was no like oh take this further and i don't even think anyone even really tried Uh, yeah i don't know what you would do it would i feel like anything (laughs) that would just be a like a almost would have to be like like a parody or a caricature of this album I, i don't know what what would you do i have no idea yeah, I mean, like, MCR kind of tried. I mean, they tried to do the, like, the Back to Basics Garage Rock album, mm-hmm. which they pretty much aborted because I think they just weren't really feeling inspired by something that wasn't an artistic concept album with a story behind it. Right. And then they did Danger Days a couple years later, which is a cool album, and it's been cool to see how that's caught on so much with younger fans yeah. who there for the first totally. time but you know danger days is no black parade no. so yeah it's you know it, it wouldn't be my pick for my favorite album of this era i mean i love the album mm-hmm. but also like it came out when i was 17 so in some ways i was probably a little bit like outside older than the target audience for it and i was like just starting my evolution of like getting pitchfork pilled (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) but yeah in going back over this music and writing a book on this album it's obvious like yes black parade is the pinnacle of this scene i think yeah i was well what what year was black parade help me it was September 06. 06. So, so I would have been, this is the, yeah, Black Parade is an album that I, that I do love, but I, I think, I can't imagine what this album would have done to my 
brain and DNA if I were like 13 or 14 years old because it is so huge and so different and so uh it's got such a like I don't know there's nothing I'm gonna say new about about uh Black Parade that's like but it's just I just can imagine that this would have become my entire personality (laughs) like if I were still cooking you know and it has for many people Mm -hmm. I mean in talking to Mikey he didn't even really want to get into it I mean he didn't really want to like not in a bad way but more in a sense of like you know they did so much press for this album mm-hmm. back in 06 in October yeah. when it came out and around that time it's man like kind of like the 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 MCR super fans they have everything mm-hmm. you know and there's some interesting stuff in there about mm-hmm. playing the shows and looking back on it and Mikey talking about how the idea was presented to him the first time from his brother and like seeing the artwork and the title you know it in a lot of ways it's just this thing that speaks for itself i think this is an album that couldn't have been made by any other band either you need the kind of brain and attitude of a person like gerard and like mikey and you know and the rest of the guys but obviously this is their album i think this is gerard's really that is it's just such a singular thing i I know we we said this already but i'm just imagining anybody try like who are the bands on their heels that the kind of like who do we have because we have my chem i'm trying to think you know um and I you know, know. A lot of bands definitely got paid because of MCR's success. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like we were saying, I don't think any of them really tried to replicate it because they exactly. knew they couldn't. Right. And I don't think that's I mean, there are there are plenty of bands we could say who were trying to do Taking Back Sunday, who were trying to do Fall Out Boy, <laughs> yeah. even, if, even if they didn't get there, you know. Um, and some of those bands I like. It's not, I'm not going to, you know, but it's it's obvious that that's what they were doing. And I just you. I can't think of any band trying to do my chem because especially this album, because I don't know that you could if you wanted to. You know, I think a lot of what it did in this lineage we're talking about is it made the next wave of emo bands sound totally different. It was mm-hmm. kind of this sign of, okay, if you're interested in emo, let's go back to underground let's because it's you know by by this point in so many ways the genre had been pulled away from its underground roots Mm -hmm. and black parade just took it as far as it could go as a concept album and also like we were saying with Wentz, he took it as far as it could go into celebrity so i think why like bands like algernon and like tiger's jaw and like world is a beautiful place you know, all the big bands of like the emo revival, why that stuff is just so different than, you know, the emo pop stuff from the years of my book, why it's such a different mentality, such a different vibe is because it had been pushed to the limit. Yeah, it's like a pendulum swing. Totally. You're so right. Yeah. You don't in a in a sort of indirect, well, no, not in an indirect way, in a really direct, but kind of like equal and opposite way. You don't get those bands without an album like this and without 
the whole kind of spectacle around Fallout Boy, and that's yeah, that's really fascinating. You've you've clearly thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've had plenty of time too, yeah. and, and I mean, like, even if I wasn't doing a book on it, I would still be thinking about it a yeah. lot. Of course. <laughs> to be <Absolutely>. clear. <laughs> it's good to channel it into a productive uh, outlet, though, for sure. Um, we only have one more. I say this every week, but this really did fly by. I feel like I could talk to you about this forever. Um, but before we get into the last song, why don't you let folks know where they can find the book and where they can follow you, keep up with you if you want them to find you on the Internet, all that good stuff. Sure book is out now uh where are your boys tonight in stores now go find the boys where they are tonight (laughs) yeah it's uh wherever you like to buy books should be there hopefully and uh find me online i'm definitely going to be doing a lot of fun stuff press just shooting the shit on twitter about the book uh at cpain on a plane is my Twitter handle and my Instagram <laughs> handle that goes back to snakes on a plane. It was the name screen name I made in 2006, just off the cuff. And it's uh-huh. followed me for better or worse across the internet ever since. Amazing. And I have a Substack also where I've been chatting about the book and sharing some stuff that didn't make it in and some backstory stuff uh, that's saved to drafts.substack.com. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes. And even if this isn't necessarily your genre of music, uh, I know I'm a little biased um, because it so is, but it's such a beautiful collection of just a really like kind of strange and unique period of time. And it's kind of really lovely to see all of these different movements and, and places coming together the way they do in the book and, um, I just I had such a good time um, reading it and listeners. I really, really, really highly recommend it. Like I said, whether you care about Fall Out Boy or Taking Back Sunday or any of those or not. And we've got one more song to talk about before we send folks on their way. Why don't you let them know? Yeah, I mean, you can't really have this without talking about Paramore, talking about misery business. You know, in talking about influencing and just what was the album that made everyone rewrite their albums, this one doesn't quite feel like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great album, Riot, Paramore's a great band, but it doesn't feel like necessarily 
it manifests itself the way that like, oh, full collapse came out and changed the game and like everyone <laughs> signs different. This, it feels like it's a lot more about Haley. It's, you know, there obviously like this band, this scene was so much made up of teen girls and they're mm-hmm. like, there was, there were definitely like female members of bands, but not, no famous band, which right. is crazy to think about. But it really wasn't until Paramore. And I remember hearing about them from my buddy Greg, uh, who played keys in a band called Moraine, who were like a, a Jersey scene band who opened for Paramore a few times in the All We Know Is Falling era. So my good friend Greg knew Haley and told me about the band a little bit before All We Know Is Falling came out. And, you know it's like, oh my God, like her voice. It's mm-hmm. sort of like cliche to say now, like it's so obvious, but yeah, like that's what people were saying. And yeah, it, it was, there was a sense of like, oh shit, like there's a girl in a fronting a band. Cause it was like thinking back to like what my iPod was back then, just full of like scene bands. I do remember like thinking like, oh, every band is fronted by a man or it's a guy yeah. singing on all these songs. And people, I mean, maybe i don't know how you remember things but just the way i remember them is people didn't really question it that much yeah yeah like it, it there wasn't this big discussion around representation back then it was no. sort of like taken for granted yeah and and when it was now one of the good things is if if you want to find a certain kind of music it's out there and it's easier to find and that's a good thing um, it that was just kind of starting to be the case, I think. So a lot of the music we were getting was like, like Fueled by Ramen is such a good example of that, where like, you know, you got Fall Out Boy and then every band on that label <laughs> just kind of came along with them. And we, yeah, it's sad to say, I don't think we questioned it at all. And then Paramore kind of, when, when they started to blow up, it seemed like there was a little bit of a scramble for labels there were a few bands that I won't, I won't, you know, I'm not going to name names, but where it was like clearly uh, labels trying to be like, oh, we need a Paramore. Um, and they didn't all kind of have the same staying power for whatever reason that, that Paramore has had. But, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of what made them special outside of like Haley was they loved like Under Oath. <laughs> and like Norma Jean and Me Without You. So they had really interesting influences ranging from like art rock to hardcore, which most of these bands, you know, female fronted or not, just didn't have, especially once the scene got really pop and like 06. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's reference points were like Taking Back Sunday and Fall Out Boy. And even though, you know, Ride is a big pop rock album, you know, also the last song on the album interpolates refused. So they so Paramore was operating on a level that almost all other bands, it, you know, of their peer group were not. And the fact that, you know, Haley Williams is probably, or at least one of the top like three most impressive vocalists, maybe the most impressive vocalist in this scene is just like okay obviously yeah she's unreal and kind of always 
has been. They're also a band I sort of think of, and I could be wrong about this because I wasn't as, I'm not, I wasn't like as deep a part of their fan base at the time. I think they're fantastic. I love Paramore, but they kind of feel a little bit like sort of like a workhorse band where I'm like, they're kind of always around and always, they just kind of always seem to be chugging away at it or plugging away at it. But I never, they're not like a, a band the way that like my, my chemical romance or fall up way. I, can't think of any like big stunts on their end of like like we're trying to be the biggest band in the world they're just like steady and kind of crushing it and and it just seems like one day like they've just been around forever and then one day i was like oh they're just the biggest band in the world like i don't know and i don't remember any of it ever being surprising right yeah exactly that's what i mean it was just like kind of like natural sort of mm-hmm. progression for this band totally yeah by the time Riot came out, they were about as big as you could be within the scene mm-hmm. without being a pop band. Yeah. And then from like the very first hints of Riot and Misery Business as the lead single, it was just like, oh, this is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, and then Haley ends up on uh, some like just like straight huge radio singles on her own. And it's like, and again, I don't know. I don't know. I just I think they're a very unique kind of story that way in in this scene to come up that way. And like you said, it's not that any of their albums and that this isn't a bad thing, but it's not that any of their albums totally changed the scene or anything. They they're just such a steady presence. It seems like you don't yeah. get that a lot. And I think the through line to now, as I think about what we were saying with following the thread of MCR to now and Fall Out Boy from then to now. Haley Williams is just such an influence on songwriters. Mm-hmm. Not even just within emo or within punk, but also in folk and in pop. In almost as much as a way that I think Taylor Swift dominates the influence. I mean, also Phoebe Bridgers. Mm-hmm. So much of like indie pop and bedroom pop and indie folk feels influenced by Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift, which like if you think about 10 years ago, it's kind of crazy to think that those two artists would be the two mm-hmm. that are put together in that sentence. Yeah, right. But Haley, Haley Williams feels absolutely in that conversation of like kids who definitely were not old enough uh, to have been fans when Riot came out. It's her influence, whether it's with Riot or with her solo albums or like her hair dye company. She just seems like such an influential figure for for kids who are into alternative music of all sorts of of all sorts mm-hmm. over the years, whether it's millennials or Gen Z. Totally. I've said this, I don't know, about 50 times in the hour and a half that we've been talking, but fascinating. Really just and I, I do think these are all of these bands are bands that like if you're not somebody who is as involved (laughs) with thinking about the scene as as you clearly are and and as i am you might not realize a lot of of this it's 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 exciting and it's really interesting it's really fascinating to have all of this collected somewhere where you can see how they all um kind of work together and how they all where they all dovetail and it's a really tremendous undertaking on your part um and i'm so glad that you undertook it so uh 
thank you really so, so much for, for talking with me today. And listeners, um, I mean it. Go pick up this book and uh, let, it, let me know what you think of it because I think it's fantastic. Um, Chris Payne, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks so much for the kind words. Uh, this was a lot of fun to chat about. This has been Left of the Dial. I've been your host, Andrea. Chris Payne has been my guest today. Pick up Where Your Voice Tonight out everywhere where you find your books. Go find it. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. And if I don't see you in a long, long while, I try to find you left of the dial.